my title was The Gospel and the Song of Creation because there is this, there's a song that he sings. And he sings and he keeps singing, you know, and we want to hear that. Um, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm in this progression, which may not be obvious, but just in my own mind, these things, the Lord spoke to me. In January, awake, arise, count it, all joy, no eye has seen, and the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are running over the face of the earth. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to our prayers. But um, So I'm kind of in this section on what no eye has seen, and I think this is the place we want to live. You know, we want to live in that realm where there's more than we can see, more than we can rationally, you know, wrap our arms around. And this is the great mystery of the gospel. So love, love it, love it. Thank you. Well, I'll read. Um, I started, last time I spoke, I think I covered a portion, a few verses in Romans chapter one. This is a, a daunting task. So I'm hoping before I get to heaven I can memorize the whole book of Romans, but we'll see. If not, I'll get instant, you know, I'll know everything in, in a flash. But uh, <laughs> and we started Paul, a servant of Christ. He's a love slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and that's the purpose of his life. And of course, the gospel of God is about his son. And uh, then he, he says this, and we sort of ended there, that, it, that through whom, through Jesus, through Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And... Uh, and that was his specific calling. The grace was the power, a divine power, uncreated power, gift of God at work in him that enabled him to do it. But his apostleship was his commission. That was his specific grace. If you heard Ben speak last Sunday, it was a powerful, great message on grace. But that's what enabled him to keep going and going and going and never give up. And so... Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would be to us that spirit that reveals things too deep for words. We love you. We pray that the word of God would not only be opened up to us, but opened up in us and through us, and that we would be expressions of that song you sing. We bless you and we ask you to help us be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so um, just jumping in because otherwise, <laughs> you know, I love this before we get into, I, I just, um, I'm stricken by a few terms here. Verse six, um, I mean, it's amazing that Paul God would pick this crazy, you know, Hebrew of the Hebrews, you know, strictest kind of Pharisee, crazy jihadist, hates everybody that wasn't, you know, following God, 
He's doing God a favor by getting rid of Christians. And God says, I'm going to use this guy. And he sends him to the Gentiles. You know, he just sends him like what he would never choose, God chose for him and set him apart for it. And he was profound at it. And he did it all for the sake of his name, you know, to bring uh, the nations to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Paul wasn't making a name for himself. He was making a name for Jesus. And the amazing thing is that, you know, you might say, well, at the end of his life, you know, what did he have? He was in jail. He was beheaded. And, but you know what? We're still reading these words all over the world today, you know, and their life and their, their lasting, their eternal. That's a pretty good ministry, I'd say. And, uh, and he says, to, then he, he targets it. He said, you know, he's, he's gone to all the nations, including you, verse 6, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I just love that phrase, called to belong to Jesus Christ. What a, what a great calling. That's the invitation. Come, come and belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and not just in Rome, but everywhere in the world, to all those who are loved by God, come on, and called to be saints, called to be holy, called to be like outside, extraordinary, outside of the ordinary, called into this supernatural life of where we're, we're continually purified by the living waters flowing through us, that that we, we operate in things which at time we're very aware are beyond our ability. This is the life of grace, isn't it? All right. So then he, um, the next paragraph, which I'm going to skip over, he just, he says, I thank God for all of you continually in my prayers. He says, your faith's being proclaimed all over the world. Come on. And he wants to go there. And, and he explains it. Verse 14, you know, I mean, he explains that he has called, he wants to go there because he wants to engage with them. He wants to be involved in the harvest that God has prepared. And this is his passion. And he explains it that he's under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and to foolish. And so he's, you know, he's just saying, this is what I am, you know, he's not, Shrinking back from this, he's eager, you know, and he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel, verse 15, to you also who are in Rome. Isn't that amazing that he's eager to do this? He's eager to declare the victory of God. He's eager to declare that, that Jesus Christ has opened the grave, that he's abolished death, that he's brought immortality and life to light, that he's, he's released new creation. He's eager to do this, which is amazing because, you know, it's not like it's all been easy for him. <laughs> he was imprisoned in Philippi. He's chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea because people wanted to kill him. And, uh, and then later he was, same thing, out of Jerusalem. And, and he, was, he was mocked in Athens. He was stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. And he goes, come on. I'm eager to come. I'm going into Rome, into the heart of the beast. And I'm eager to preach the gospel there. I'm eager to declare this this. Lord Jesus Christ, this Caesar Jesus Christ, I'm eager to declare this kingdom that's greater than the empire. Come on, this is great. 
Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation or for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he's declaring, he says, I, there's nothing in me that shrinks back. The, you know, they, the more I'm beat up, the more I get up, <laughs> you know, and every scar on me is a trophy of grace. The devil might try to kill us, but God is keeping us alive until we finish our course. I mean, this is reality. You know, this is reality. What we're called to may not, not everybody likes it. <laughs> but he wants to say, why am I so excited about declaring this victory of God? The good news is because it's the power of God. It's the power of God. And why is it God's power? Because every time the gospel is preached, there's a release of new creation. Who brings order out of chaos? We were singing that, that beautiful Jeremy Riddle song, you know, that he did, you know, this is creation. Every time someone comes to Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That song of creation is being sung over a new soul. Every time the gospel is received, and the, the gospel is, you know, far more than, than the, you know, the, the, we can present it very simply. But when it's received, it's way more than simple. You know, it's new life. It's, it's the new creation. Whew. So it's like God, you know, the Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos. Genesis 1, 2. The Holy Spirit's hovering over the deep darkness, the lack of potential in a person's life. And then the Lord speaks, let there be light. And it begins and it culminates in the image and likeness of God. This is why it's the power of God unto salvation. Salvation means rescue. What does he rescue us from? From misery. From, he, he delivers us from bondage. He heals us from disease. He heals us from broken hearts. He heals us from apathy and depression and giving up and the, the purposeless existence of postmodern life, you know, that there's no purpose. It's all just the chaos. You know, it's like Carl Sagan in the 80s and 90s, very famous, you know, atheist guy. He has this big book called Cosmos, and, and BBC does a whole series on it. And he starts out, he says, that the cosmos, the universe, it's all there ever was and all there ever will be. Do you know how hopeless that is? Means there, I mean, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. We sense there's something more. But he's declaring, nobody made it, there's no purpose, and there's no message. Except you're a little blue speck in the middle of this vast, merciless universe, and no one's going to save us. That was his, that was his bottom line. And for that, you get rich and famous. And for declaring the gospel of God, you could get thrown in prison, you could get beat up, you could get laughed at, you could get chased out of town, and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you will wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to do it again. We break off shame, we break off intimidation, we declare who God is and how he is. He is the truth, and what he said will be true forever. It's the power of God unto salvation. And who's it for? It's for all who believe. 
This is a big point with Paul. He says it again in chapter four, verse 11. He says, Abraham, you know, Abraham entered into this faith covenant relationship with God before he was circumcised. Why? It was so that he would become the father of all who believed whether they were circumcised or not. So Paul's addressing this issue that the covenant promises that God kept with the Jewish people, they're still good, they're still there, but God has another covenant for every person to bring all nations to the obedience of faith, to this place where we, <laughs> we because we love him, we obey him. All right, all who believe, uh, chapter 10, verse four, that that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's this everyone. It's a big, important part of his message. It's for everyone. So when we put our trust in him, then all this opens up to us. I mean, it's simple trust. That we trust God. It, and Christ becomes the end of the law for righteousness. The law of God is valid, all its principles stand, but Christ is now not only the culmination of the law, but he is, he is no longer the source of righteousness, but, he be, but Christ himself becomes the source of righteousness. So now we keep the law out of the righteousness of God, not to, to be righteous, you understand? And, and then he repeats it again, chapter 10, verse 11, that you know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. So it's, it's for everyone. Isn't this, it's like, so why, why isn't he ashamed of the gospel? Because it's, it's the creative power of God. I'm telling you, when, when you're, you're sharing faith, you're radiating faith, whether it's with words or deeds, you're releasing new creation into the hearts of those who are caught in chaos and darkness, those who are trapped in the fruit of their sin, those who've turned away from God. I mean, it's amazing, you know, that, that we turn away from God at, at an early age, you know, look. I mean, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but even as a little boy, because I grew up, this is the 1950s in America, I heard the song, Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Even though I'd never read the Bible, I knew that song. This is the Martin Luther song. This is the whole gospel in a little song that a child can learn. Jesus loves me, this I know. But it, I just thought it was cute. Maybe I believed it a little bit when I was seven or something, but by the time I was 14, you know, I was a mess. I was a rebel, I was an alcoholic, I was all those things because I turned away from God because everything, I got trapped, led astray by my desires, warped desires, you know, which our, our culture produces. You know, if, you, if you're exposed to, you know, any kind of media, movies, television, so you get enticed into false narratives and we miss the reality of who God is and how good creation is and why we're here and whose image we bear. Yeah, I'm just saying that. Okay, now, come on. Why is he not ashamed? He said, it, for in it, I mean, this is the, the other amazing thing about the gospel, that it reveals the righteousness of God. For in it, for in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's uncovered. It's like the, the lid comes off <clears throat> to everyone. Help me. 
Hey, where's my cup of water? Right when I need it. Okay. For in it, oh, here it comes. Thank you, Ian. Okay, it's the bottle of Perrier. Oh, okay, now I've got two drinks. Okay. Thank you. Now I'm really in good shape. Okay. For in it, the righteousness, oh, I feel much better now, is revealed from faith for faith. So why does God reveal his righteousness? Because it produces trust. It produces faith. And faith is the channel by which the grace of God can save us and set us free. So as I trust in God, I become, I become a recipient of his saving grace. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so this is, by the way, this is a quotation from Habakkuk. I think it's Habakkuk 2.4, might be 4.2. It's in Habakkuk. You can find it. But this, I didn't write it in my notes, obviously. The, uh, but this is, I mean, this is quoted several times in the New Testament, two other times in the New Testament. But I'm just saying, this is a great thing. As you're reading the New Testament, you have to realize that the writers of the New Testament did not have the New Testament. You know, sometimes we want to have New Testament Christianity. We read the book of Acts, I want to be a New Testament Christian. But the New Testament Christians actually didn't have the New Testament. They just had the Old Testament. And often they didn't have the full Old Testament. They just had, but so Paul, who had been a scholar of all this, you know, and Peter, who maybe wasn't a scholar, but, you know, after he was with Jesus, he was with the Word of God. But anyway, I mean, he knew, he had the law, and he had the prophets, and he had the writings, and from there, as he would, you know, as they would be living their lives, and, and Paul went away for a few years out in the desert where he, everything got reframed for him, but they would discover these promises in the Old Testament that opened up their understanding of what the gospel of God is. So when you keep reading, like Psalm 110 gets repeated over and over again, and there's other uh, passages from the Old Testament that get frequently repeated. It is worth your time to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not going to try to get my, I don't know how many chapters a day, you know, or something. This was, when I was a young Christian, you know, I had these goals. I could read two chapters a day, four chapters a day, 10 for quite a period of time. I was reading 10 chapters a day because I thought that would make me really holy. And in a sense, it did. I mean, not in the way I thought it would. I thought it was kind of like works righteousness. Like, how many chapters did you read, huh? You know, because when we're babies, we're babies. You know, when we're immature, we're immature. And I was an immature believer. But in all of that, God, God's word was getting into me, and his word was saving me. You know, so, okay. So what is the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is his saving activity. You know, and it, it is... I mean, it redefines who we are. Here's a good one for, you know, a, a verse. It, by the way, he, he uses this term, righteousness of God. Paul uses it nine times in the entire New Testament. Eight times are in the book of Romans. The one that's not in the book of Romans is one that you might be familiar to, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he writes, you know, before that says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then he says, for in it, it being the righteous, it being the gospel, for in it, the righteous, oh, sorry, I'm bad, <laughs> wrong, wrong note. I only had four hours sleep last night, so forgive me. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, which is what, I, 
Isn't that great that God does it for our sake and because he does everything for our sake, we wanna do it for his sake? This is a love relationship, you know? So for our sake, he made him, he being the father, made him, meaning the son, by the way, notice there's no gender confusion there. He (laughs) made him to be, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Is that a stunning? Like, Like he made him who knew no sin, the spotless God the Son who became the Son of Man who was the Lamb that take away the sin of the world who was spotless, was like us in every way, yet without sin. He made him sin on the cross. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. The righteousness God has revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith or from faith to faith. There's many ways to translate it. I like the New, the new International Version says, this is his, the righteousness of God is revealed which is of faith from start to finish. It's all about like the transmission of the righteousness of God, the glory of God. It, it, it operates in faith, in trust, in a commitment that, that it's, it's mutual and it's personal. So, um, so it, and it, has, it has different dimensions. The first, there's the dimension of it is the righteousness of God, that God himself is righteous, that God is, to use the Hebrew word, God is a sadiq. You know, he is righteous in every way. He, he keeps his promises. He honors his covenants. He is faithful. Emunah. He, you know, and we trust in the faithfulness of God. That's why we trust him, because he's trustworthy. And this is the righteousness of God that gets revealed to us. All of these dimensions get revealed to us. So, so this is our, our basis for trusting God, is that, that it's revealed to us how trustworthy he is. The sec, and a second way that we understand the righteousness of God, and this was something that that Augustinian monk Martin Luther discovered, you know, in, in his torment and wondering, God, I don't know if if I'm really with you or not, he discovered that God declares us righteous. Like we're guilty, but he declares us righteous. So we're no longer sinners, we're now saints. Now we haven't, haven't cleaned up our act yet. We might still be doing all kinds of things wrong, but in, with the declaration that we're righteous, now the disposition of God changes toward us and we're no longer treated as criminals, but we're treated as children. Because and there's a different way, you know, if, if at your house you look out and somebody is like stealing your car or, or destroying something, you might call the police, especially if it's in the middle of the night and you don't know who it is because there's a criminal activity going on. So we call the police and, and we, have a, we have a penal system that works with that dimension. But if it's your child, you don't treat them that way. You know, if your eight-year-old beats up the seven-year-old or six-year-old, you don't say, well, you're going to jail. I mean, hopefully that never happens, but maybe if they never change their ways, they will. But, but it, there's an entirely different disposition that a parent has for a child. So when God declares us righteous, he also adopts us as his own. And we become children. This is the gospel, isn't it? And he no longer imputes uh, guilt to us, but he imputes love to us, and he justifies us. And there, and so, I mean, here's an example from my own life when I was about 14. I told you I went all, you know, the wrong in, at an early age. So when I was about 14, in addition to being, I really was a teenage alcoholic. That's not any exaggeration. But 
my friend Pat's father had a brand new car and it was a really fancy car and his parents were up with some business clients at a restaurant having a few drinks and a dinner and all that stuff. And, and so Pat drives his dad's new car over to my house. We're 14 years old and we'd been practicing in the driveway and up and down the streets. So and now he drives over to my house and says, come on, let's go drive around. You know, so we're 14, we're cruising around. This is a resort town in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the summer, you know, so you cruise around. We're like this tall, you know. And, and so I'm driving and unfortunately I drove into a tree and that was the end of our joy ride. And so... I'm sitting, you know, and so anyway, the police come. We called, we did call the police. <laughs> First, we ran away because we were going to run away. And then <laughs> we decided, well, let's call the police and let's report there was an accident, you know. <laughs> so we, we go back to the car. And, uh, and, and so the police come and they take Pat to find his parents. Because this is a small town, like people actually knew each other. And so the highway patrol, the captain of the highway patrol was somebody we knew and uh, California Highway Patrol. So they take him off to, to find his parents. And I'm sitting there near the car on a step and I'm, my, my face is bleeding and, uh, from hitting the steering wheel and all that stuff. And so people, tourists are walking by and they feel sorry for me and they're patting me on the back and, you know, guy's a doctor, are you okay? You know, <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> so, but then Mr. Spear comes, you know. Eventually this is gonna happen. So the police car comes back and uh, Mr. Spear walks up He had really big hands. He was the heavyweight champion of the Pacific in the Navy during World War II. You know, and really that, and and he liked me, but he didn't like me then. And he walks up, he says, Charlie, how come you stole my car? And I'm just looking, and I said, Mr. Spear, I didn't steal your car. Pat came and he picked me up. Like, that was a big paradigm shift, like, oh, okay. So then... I get, we get in the car and Pat and I are in the back behind the cage and where there's no, you know, you can't open the doors. And we're driving through this town looking for my father. My mom's in Montana and we're looking for my father and all the kids in the whole town see us because, you know, they're out at the streets and we're in the back of the car and Mr. Spears in the front of the car and he is not feeling fatherly at the time and he says to Captain Lockhart, the the California Highway Patrol captain. He says, I want you to throw the book at these boys. He was mad. I mean, I'm glad God isn't mad like that, you know. So anyway, the, 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 the Captain Lockhart says to him, calm down, Chuck. <laughs> like, you really don't want your kids going to jail, you know. So, so we, anyway, we worked our debt off. Took us about three years. And... And, uh, and we paid for everything. But the, the thing, here's the thing. God never treats us like he wants to throw us in jail. He actually adopts us and cares for us. And so then, uh, in addition, so the first thing is the righteousness of God is his righteousness. The second is that he imputes his righteousness to us and he, he, he treats us as beloved children. And the third thing is that the righteousness of God continues to work in our lives and we become more and more like him. So by the end, you know, after, after some time, and sometimes it's really fast, like in three days, it's like, what happened? Totally new person. Other people, it's like, takes them longer. They're in Pennsylvania lingo, they're a piece of work. You know, it's like, 
Like, that guy's a Christian? Like, but it's like, that is something that hopefully would never be said, but it does get said. So, but then, like, we need the righteousness of God, don't we? And we need it to be revealed to us day after day after day. John said, behold what manner of love the Father's lavished upon us. And that the longer we behold the love of God, the more the love of God transforms who we are that we would be called the children of God, and that's what we are. But It's not in the future, it's now, now we are the children of God. When we have this vision, this hope in us, we purify ourselves. It's the response, and we have supernatural help doing it called the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is great, but that's not the only thing that gets revealed, and so we don't talk about this much. In fact, I was thinking today, it was, I have not heard a, a message on the wrath of God in, in my memory. I mean, I'm sure sometime I heard David Wilkerson on it or something like that back in the 70s, but, but the righteousness of God is what welcomes us into his presence so that when we stand before him, we've been transformed by this grace and righteousness, by the gift of his righteousness. We become more and more like him and one day we'll stand before him and here's what we wanna hear. This is the glory of God, that he would before all heaven say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest, enter into my joy. This is why Paul didn't want to stop. I am eager to have fruit among you. I am eager to be part of the harvest. That everything we do one day will be celebrated. And we're not doing it out of ego. We're doing it, in fact, you know, he get, you know we cast our crowns down before him because he's so much more worthy than we are. But that is actually part of the glory we look for is that one day God will say, well done, well done, Jesus help us. But there's another possibility, and that is the possibility that we stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And, and, he, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Like, oh God, it, that's pretty terrifying. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that's like Matthew chapter seven. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? But that comes from when he says, I never knew you. How could he who knows all things, knows the end from the beginning, not know us? What he's saying is you never entered in to communion with me and my people. You were busy doing stuff for me, but you didn't know me. I'm just saying that not to scare you, but just like, like we have this reality that he's actually looking for us to partner with him and to, and to interact with him and to steward this amazing gift of mercy and righteousness that we've been given. And sometimes we just don't. We get busy. All of, it's all about me, but it's not all about me. It's all about him. Jesus, help us. Okay, so now we find, okay, we get to this other part. And some of this, it just depends on what we're hearing. And so I, w I was reading this um, book, by C.S. Lewis, you know, 
the magician's nephew, Chronicles of Narnia, in the first service I said it was the first book, and Anne told me, no, it's the sixth book. But it, the magician's nephew has the story of creation. Thank you, Anne. We read these books to our kids. We read them to each other in the car because we didn't have sound systems. You know, we'd be going on long road trips. We'd read the Chronicles of Narnia. We were young Christians, and we loved it. But there's this amazing thing. In there, there's this scene where they're in total darkness, and they start to hear a song, and pretty soon all the stars pop into existence, and they hear the songs, the stars singing as well. This is such tremendous imagery for our imagination. And then, and they're in wonder. Diggory is the, is the little boy, the magician's nephew. His uncle Andrew is a bad guy, and he's, he's the uncle. And then there's a, there's a girl named Polly there, and there's a cabbie. Somehow, this whole thing, they got translated into Narnia at the moment of creation, and they're hearing the song, and then, then the sky gets right, and it opens up, and they see, and the song keeps coming, and they see there's a lion singing everything into existence, and it's like a pool spreading out like waves going up the hillsides, and it's stunning imagery. And, and they're in awe, but not everybody's in awe. Uh, Uncle Andrew was hiding by the bushes and he did not like the sound of the song because he didn't want to be caught up in wonder. He wanted a world small enough that he could control and he was there in Narnia trying to figure out how he could get stuff and bring it back to his life and make a lot of money selling things. (laughs) So that's the story. And so then there's this comment that, that the writer says, to understand this, you have to back up a bit, and then and he says this, for what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. It's an insight, you know, that God is looking for those who are seeking him. The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And so we come to verse 18. Okay, for the wrath of God. So we have the, we have the righteousness of God. Now we have the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now I want you to notice something. The wrath of God is revealed not against the people. It's revealed against their ungodliness and unrighteousness. That which is not like God and that which is, that does not honor covenant and responsibility and all of that would be what righteousness is. And it says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And so the wrath of God is not like God is angry and has a bad temper and he, you know, he's not throwing people through windows or anything like that if you had an abusive father. And, and I'm glad, I didn't have an abusive father, but I had some friends who did. You know? And so... Uh, the, uh, it, he, the wrath of God is just kind of like a, okay, that's what you want. It, it's like indignation because he has prepared the greatest banquet that could, you could imagine. You know, he is, he is uh, you know, he's, everything's decorated, all, all the food's there, everything's there. He sent out the invitations. And we have this parable Jesus tells in, in Matthew, and he says that the servants go out to bring all the people in, and the people that were invited say, oh, sorry, you know, I got some oxen, I have to test them out. And other guy says, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go do this. Or I just got engaged, and I have to. And so they all had reasons not to come. And it says the king was like, mm. See, 
because he's prepared this thing to honor us, if we don't respond to that invitation, there is this like, hmm. So you know what he says? Okay, go out in the highways and byways and bring them in, compel them in. I'm gonna fill up the table. You know, and so that's the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not that he, he comes after us and he, he beats us up or anything. It's that he lets us go our own way. Because it's, it's like an insult to his dignity. So, you know, indignation is kind of a word we don't use much. But in Spanish, the word digno is the word for worthy. See, to eres digno, you are worthy of it all. We sing that, but then we, we live it by responding, by seeking him. Seek me. Seek the Lord and his face. <laughs> anyway, do you get it? And so the wrath of God is revealed against those who choose to, they don't want to go. They don't want to go. And in fact, in their unrighteousness, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so they push the truth down to make it less apparent. Now, truth is reality. Truth is what is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But when we're suppressing truth, we're actually working against truth. And it's like, and it's interesting, the Greek word for truth, aletia, is it starts with an A. And when Greek words start with an A, it's like an English word that starts with U-N. You know, it's a negation of whatever comes next. So how could truth be a negation? Well, it's a negation of the verb, uh, the, the Greek verb is lantano, but it, it means, lantano means to be unaware, to escape notice, to be hidden. So truth is the uncovering of reality. And so when we, by our unrighteousness, our unwillingness to live by God's standards, we suppress the truth. This is what the wrath of God is like, you know, okay, you turn away from me, I'll just turn away from you. Not, and thank God he doesn't do this with any kind of speed. But, and, and so then he goes on and he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And so we have God expressing his wrath toward people who have deliberately Press, gone against reality. Here's an example, 2 Peter 3, 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And so this, you know, so we have this in our age and in our culture. We have this materialism, reductionism, it's Marxism. It's, it's saying there's nothing there except what you can taste, see, smell, feel, that's all there is, which is really boring. And there's no purpose in it at all. And, and so it's like why people have, why there's so much despair because this is actually being promoted by our popular culture. It's, it's often taught in public schools. If they're, you know, it's, it's definitely being taught in the universities that it's actually, it's destroying the very things that God gave us, which are reason, 
conscience and imagination by which we seek after truth and goodness and beauty. And we see this deliberately even in the curriculum that's now being recommended for very young children to teach them, you know, that there's no such thing as a boy or a girl when in the beginning God created us male and female. It, it's been, all this stuff, I mean, you know, critical race theory, all these things, they're like, they're like suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There's a motive behind all of this, and it's not your good, believe me that. So the, uh, so, but what God wants, it's suppressing the song of creation. It's suppressing the beautiful song. It's turning away, wanting something that's small and ugly and that we can, we can control ourselves. And instead, God invites us into his world, which we can't control, but which we, we just surrender in worship, trusting his goodness and his righteousness. Come on, this is a life of worship. And so, but then he goes on, he makes this very interesting statement, um, verse 21, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Now that is an oxymoron. That's like saying jumbo shrimp. You know, we're selling jumbo shrimp. You know, and I mean, there's a lot of other ones, but I won't, they're not as respectful. So, the, uh, but, but Paul does this deliberately to have people go, what? In fact, it caused me to go, what? You know, invisible attributes are clearly perceived. And so it's very interesting because if we look, if you sit on a mountaintop I mean, or a beach or out in the woods or on a farm or something out on a clear night and you behold the stars, you just, you realize everything is a lot bigger than you are and the world was created before you were born, you know, which, so this is his eternal power and his divine nature and you sense there's mystery behind it. I had this experience in, in May of 1969, I've talked about it before, I'm, I'm living in Berkeley that's had an entire year of riots, I'm trying to find reality and I end up uh, on a, up at eight or 9,000 feet in Yosemite National Park and I, and I have this encounter with God on top of a big giant boulder, you know, that had a crack in it and I climbed up because I didn't think that way a bear would eat me in the night and while I'm there, I get, I get invited into about a three or four hour encounter with God, first seeing a sunset and being able to see all the way to the coastal range and then as the stars come out, I'm like in awe and wonder and I realize how small I am and how small the riots in Berkeley are and how small this perspective is and I, and though I denied God and I was, you know, I was running after swamis and gurus and if I prayed something, it would probably be to Krishna or something, but, it, but in that, God came to me, not, not visibly, not with ears I could hear, but in my heart, I knew some, there is somebody, there's God behind all this, and he's good. And I, I didn't know his son, I didn't know his name, I didn't know, I just, I was aware of his divine nature and his eternal power, and the message I got is, it's gonna be okay. Like, this isn't the end of the world, as you know it. You know, and I thought, okay, God. And wasn't God merciful? It took me two or three more years before I bowed my knee and said, Jesus, if you'll show me you're real, I'll follow you. But this is, this is how God is. And, and so we're without excuse that these things 
which are revealed in nature can are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. So even though God's invisible, what he made is a testimony to his brilliance. And it's like, and by the way, the term there, clearly perceived, you could translate this, can be intellectually understood. So God is giving evidence, God's actually creating his case for, for um, you know, why we need salvation and what the effects of sin are, but the, this is the beginning of it. But to comprehend reality, you know, one of the things that happens is we begin to apply our reason to all these things, we, we realize that the senses are inadequate to the task, that reason does not lie mainly, in, I mean, then that's not because our hearing's bad or our eyesight's bad or our taste buds are worn out, and now at age 70, I'm thinking, yeah, that's more real than it used to be, but the fact is that reality is truly mysterious, it carries a dimension that we're unable to fully comprehend. And this is what, what's so amazing as, we, as you study anything, as you study history, as you study the human personality, as you study you know, uh, cosmology and the universe and astronomy, astrophysics, anything. You study DNA at a microscopic level or quarks and, and quantum particles, anything that you study, you could study frogs in a pond, and if you study deeply enough, you'll come to a place of wonder, that it's bigger than we are, and this is something, this is the difference, and it's very, it's important that, that we don't, you know, God has given us reason, he's given us a conscience, he's given us imagination, and these are all like, like voices that bring us into a confrontation with something bigger than ourselves. And it's so important that we don't mistake this, that we can understand all that there is. And this is the difference between a symbol and a sacrament. And I, th I think there's a slide that will show up here miraculously, thanks to Rick Pickens. And so here, you see, over here is a symbol you see a symbol, it points to something, but it's separate from something. A, an example of a symbol might be um, you're driving down the road, it's, you know, it's 10.30 and it's a dark night and you're going too fast on a windy road and there's forests on both sides. And then you see this sign and on the sign there's a jumping deer. Now you don't think that there's actually a deer in that sign. That's a symbol. It's telling you, there are deer in these woods, stupid, and if you don't slow down, one of these deer may just jump right out in front of your car, and you'll be really sorry. That's, that's what a symbol is. And so sometimes we've been taught, like about communion, that you know the bread and the wine, they're just symbols of the body and the blood, but they're not. There's something deeper. In fact, all of creation is deeper than that. So, and this is what's called a sacrament, and the early church fathers, and all through the medieval period, uh, the, the Christian community understood that e all of creation is sacramental, and, and particularly when we have communion, that, there, that in, there is a, there's a, a, a union, a little Venn diagram there, the part that overlaps is the part, it's not all of God is in the bread and the wine, but something is in the bread and wine beyond the bread and the wine. 
when we pray and sanctify it. And so we are. Is not this loaf that we share a communion, a participation in the body of Christ? Is not this cup that we bless a communion in the blood of Christ? And so it becomes a place of worship that's very holy, but the reality is all of creation is sacramental. All of creation in him, Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. He, you know, this is ontology. This is like our very existence is because God, we are a manifestation of the word of God before we ever know him. And everything that exists is here. You know, um, Colossians 1, 16, 17, you know, he's first of all things he, by him and for him, through him and for him, all things are created. Verse 17, and by him all things subsist. It's like the word of God is in this. Uh, Hebrews chapter one, that he holds all things together by the word of his power. That when, when he, you know, if God was to absent himself from creation, creation would be absent from existence. You know, it would be like, gone. So thank you, Jesus. So, and so Here's what is wonderful, that Christ is mysteriously present in everything, and it brings us to a place of honor and wonder, which is, in, and so he goes on in verse 20, and I'm, I'm gonna wrap this up, but although they knew God, like they, there was actually an awareness of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, and they became futile or or useless or frustrated in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Things small enough that they could manage. See, and God invites us into wonder. He invites us into honor. So as we honor him and we honor each other and we honor our commitments and we honor the, the God and, uh, you know, this is, this is what revelation does to us. It brings us into worship. Why don't you stand up and uh, we're, we're just about done here. And then we give thanks, which means we recognize there's some good in it. And it, you know, the, the God help us by revelation to honor everyone. And then, I mean, this is the first principle of missions. It's, you know, you go someplace, you go, to, you know, we moved to Pennsylvania from California in 1987, and we knew if we didn't honor Pennsylvania, we would have no voice here and no, no, never find our purpose. So we were, you know, there were things like culture shock and all that. And you ever, like, you know, here, here's Edgar and Yadira come from Guatemala. There, there's like things that are different here than in Guatemala. Some are, some are great and some aren't so great to, from that perspective. But if we want to be effective wherever we go, we seek God. Help me to honor all men. You ever read that in Peter? He says, honor the brotherhood. Honor, you know, your brothers and sisters. Honor the king or the president. Honor all men and women, all humans. You know, I mean, it's like, God, give us eyes to see your glory in every person, even if it's behind the worst disguise.
that behind that sinful, rebellious exterior, the glory and image of God is hidden. And we're treasure hunters. We're looking for it. Amen? Amen. Okay. So raise your hands. I just want to pray the Holy Spirit. This is like that the that the righteousness of God would be revealed to you and through you. And that your, your mission in this world, it, as, you, as you live and share and you worship and you give thanks and you honor, you become the antidote to the very suppression of truth that, that with, involves the, right, the wrath of God being, it's a disposition. It's not like he's smashing things, but it's just like it. It's displeasing to him. I want you to raise your hands. Whoo! Jesus said when they asked him, God, are, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Acts 1 6. <laughs> he said, no, I don't know. That's not, not for you to know. But I'll tell you this that you're going to receive power from on high. And it's going to transform you, and you're going to be the testimony of my reality wherever you go. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to raise your hands. Holy Spirit, would you come upon us? Just lift your hands. Say, God, fill me. Fill me with your righteousness. Fill me with your love. Fill me with wonder. Show me the glory of creation that I can walk in honor and thanksgiving all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I just, I, you know, we're going to sing here and then we'll be dismissed, but if you feel like, God, I need help. I need help in this area. I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. Also, if you, uh, earlier Tiffany had a number of words of knowledge of healing, or you came here seeking healing, seeking breakthrough in your life, your business, your ministry, any of these areas, please come forward. We have very anointed uh, people prepared to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus, if you realize, man, I think I've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I've been trying to go my own way. I haven't wanted to hear what God is saying. This is the day to lay it down and come and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, save me. I'm ready to live for you. Something that happens when we praise, when we worship him, it it releases an influence around us that's beyond our comprehension. He is enthroned upon our praises. So I want to bless you and release you. And I'm sorry if I kept you too long, but you didn't leave and I gave you permission when I started so that we're all good. So may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion, the participation of the Holy Spirit be in you and on you wherever you go, that you would find yourself eager to demonstrate, eager to share, eager to communicate the good news of God with a, with a grace to honor and to give thanks in everything you do. May God bless you. Just have the best week ever. In Jesus' name, amen.